When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. The idea of an aquarium as a microcosm is not exactly a new concept. However, the idea of setting up an aquarium to provide more than just a physical shelter for its inhabitants, but rather as a functional habitat designed to create a small ecosystem and an in-situ food culturing system intrigues me. It's a little different. And it kind of goes back to looking at natural aquatic systems, as it always seems to. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time, probably too much time, pondering all sorts of arcane aspects of the hobby. Okay, so maybe you're not like me, but if you have a rather keen interest in the way nature operates in the wild aquatic systems of the world, you probably are a little bit like me. As a person who studies a lot of details about some of the habitats from which our fishes come from, I can't help but occasionally wonder exactly what it is that brings fishes to a given location or a niche within an environment. Now, the first answer we're likely to proffer is the most apparent, right? I mean, they follow the food. Fishes tend to move into new areas in search of suitable food sources as part of their life cycle. And food sources often become available in habitats such as flooded forest areas after the rains come when decomposing leaves and botanical materials begin to create, or reactivate as the case may be, food webs, attracting ever more complex forms of life into the area. In the case of many blackwater leaf litter habitats in South America, for example, the whole food web starts with our old friends, fungi and bacteria. And in fact, it's been postulated by scientists that the food web depends primarily on the litter and its associated decomposing fungi. From there, Sponges, rotifers, and amoeba arise and in turn are fed on by specialist feeders like shrimps. Yeah, there are shrimps in the Amazon and even detritivore-type fishes. Then, of course, you also have insect larvae, particularly chironomids, which are known as bloodworms, you know, larval flies, essentially, and small crustaceans like Daphnia and such, which are preyed upon by like a host of fishes. And, of course, flooded forest areas attract you know, are attractive to fishes, which consume the very fruits, the plant parts, and terrestrial insects, alochthonous inputs, as we talked about before, materials imported into an ecosystem from outside of it. And as more of this stuff falls in the tree and the surrounding dry areas gets washed into the wet areas, the greater the abundance of the fishes and other aquatic animals which use this stuff for food. And, and the greater abundance, of course, is simply found in the, in the uh, habitat. And these materials, they'll continue to fall into the water and accumulate throughout the period of inundation, maintaining the richness of the habitat as others decompose or are acted on by the organisms residing in the water. And of course, these materials continue to provide foraging for the fishes for the duration of this period of time. So how does this relate to stocking an aquarium? Is there something we can interpret and utilize in our aquarium designs? I think there is. Well, for one thing, I think you could literally create a sort of sequence to stocking various types of fishes based on the stage of evolution that your aquarium is in. Although the sequence might be a bit different than in nature in some cases. For example, in a more or less brand new aquarium, it's sort of analogous in this case to a newly inundated forest floor, there might be a lot less in the way of lower life forms such as fungi and bacteria until the materials start to break down. 
you'd simply have an aggregation of fresh leaves, twigs, seed pods, soils, etc. in the habitat. So if anything, you are likely to see fishes which are much more dependent upon the aforementioned allochthonous input, food from the terrestrial environment. This is a compelling way to stock an aquarium, you know, fishes that you're going to feed food to, especially aquarium systems like ours, which make use of these materials en masse. Now, right from the start, after cycling, of course, it would not be unrealistic to add fishes which feed on terrestrial fruits and botanical materials like Colossuma, Arowana, Metinus, etc., those, those big guys. Fishes for which most aquarists, of course, are utterly impractical to keep because they're just huge and they poop a lot. Not fishes, and they're, most of them are ugly. <laughs> not fishes you necessarily want to keep. Now, a lot of smaller, more aquarium-suited fishes will pick at these fruits as well, and so you're not stuck entirely with these big brutes. Interestingly, the con you know the consumption and elimination of fruits by fishes is thought to be a major factor in the distribution of many plants in this region. Do a little research here, and you might be quite surprised about who consumes what in these habitats. Uh, little kerosens are, are are often fruit eaters, believe it or not. More realistically for most, of course, I think that you could easily stock first with fishes like surface-dwelling or near-surface-dwelling species like hatchet fishes or pencil fishes, which are largely dependent upon terrestrial in, you know, insects like flies and ants. Um, that's what they eat in nature. In other words, they tend to forage or graze little, but they are more opportunistic, taking advantage of careless insects which end up in the water in these newly inundated habitats. Makes sense. I've read studies where almost 100 species were documented which feed near exclusively on insects and arthropods from terrestrial sources in these habitats. That's amazing. If you dive a bit deeper into the typical, then, you know, the typical hobbyist writings and venture into the scholarly materials and species descriptions, you're going to be fascinated to read about like gut content analysis of fishes because it gives you a real tremendous insight about what they eat and what to feed in the aquarium and what kind of environment they actually come from. So continuing on, it's it's pretty easy to see that as environments evolve, so does the fish population. And the possibilities for simulating this in the aquarium are many and really interesting. Now later, as materials start to break down and decompose and they're acted on by the fungi and the bacteria, you could conceivably add more of the grazing type fishes like plecos, small corridoras, headstanders, etc. As the tank ages and breaks in more, this would be analogous to the period of time where the microcrustaceans and aquatic insects are present in greater numbers, and you'd be inclined to see more of the micropredators like kerosens and ultimately small cichlids like apistos and the like. Interestingly, scientists have postulated that the evolution of these areas, evolution favored small fishes like kerosens in these types of environments because they're more efficient at capturing small terrestrial insects and spiders and stuff that are found in these flooded forests than the big guys are. Then it makes a lot of sense. If you look at it strictly from a density variety standpoint, lots of kerosens call these habitats home. Then, of course, there's detritivores. Detritivorous fishes remove, you know, real large quantities of the stuff from submerged trees, branches, soils, etc. Now, you might be surprised to learn that in the wild, the gut content analysis of almost every fish indicates they consume organic detritus to some extent. And it makes sense. They work with the food sources that are available to them at the time that they're residing in the, in the environment. At different times of the year, different food sources are easier to obtain. And of course, fish try to get the food that's easiest to obtain. And of course, all the fishes which live in these habitats contribute to the surrounding forest by recycling nutrients that are bound up in the detritus. This is thought by ecologists to be especially important in blackwater inundated forests and meadows in areas like the Pantanal because of the long periods of inundation and the nutrient-poor soils uh, as a result of these slow decomposition rates. Interesting stuff. All of this is actually pretty easy to replicate to a certain extent when we stock our aquariums. 
why would you stock in this sort of sequence when you're likely not relying on decomposing botanicals and leaves and the fungal and microbial life associated with them as your primary food source? Well, you likely wouldn't be. However, what about the way that fishes, when introduced at the appropriate phase in the tank's life cycle, um, what about the way they adapt to the tank? Wouldn't the fishes take advantage of these materials as a supplement to the prepared foods that you're feeding them? Doesn't the impact, you know, doesn't this stuff impact like the fish's genetic programming, maybe to some extent? Can it activate some like hidden health benefit, you know, behaviors, well-being, spawning? Are they are they more comfortable because of some long-established internal programming, which provides them with a certain degree of, you know, homeostasis or whatever, if you will, knowing that like, minimal competition or predators are around? Do they behave differently, acclimate to captivity faster? Do they feed better, have more robust overall health and resistance to disease? Do these conditions, again, I ask you, do they help initiate spawning behavior more readily? It's interesting to ponder, isn't it? It's purely speculative, but they can give you some ideas and some examples of things that we can unlock when we think about how these natural habitats became populated following seasonal and environmental changes and evolutions. Studying these changes and the conditions which create them is just like a really fascinating educational process that we should all embrace. The idea of meeting your tank where it is and working to stock it and manage it based on the phase of existence that it is in is really fascinating to me. Now, it's not new to add fishes in a sequence or whatever, yet I believe it is an evolution to the process when we look at the stocking in the context of how the environment we're trying to replicate evolves and hosts fishes. It's sort of another way of looking, <clears throat> excuse me, at many aspects of our aquariums differently such as providing environmental parameters appropriate for the fishes we like, to aquascaping based on the physical needs of the fishes and the environmental niches from which they come. Not simply aquascaping an aquarium then adding the fishes to complement it. I'm thinking about looking at a natural habitat and asking yourself to consider why it looks the way it does and why the specific fishes which reside there are present. Asking yourself, what makes them live there? How fishes follow the food is just one example of this process. There are, of course, other reasons besides food. There may be environmental reasons, adaptations to tidal influxes. I'm thinking of you know, brackish habitats. The need to seek out specific conditions in which to spawn, freedom from predators, particularly for juvenile fishes. Of course, I'm thinking about mangrove estuaries and seagrass beds where many larval fishes go to feed and grow before heading out to the sea or other habitats. But there are numerous other examples in various environmental niches. So many possibilities. There's so many ways to develop aquariums and stock them simply by looking at nature. Meet your aquarium where it is. Set the stage for the life forms you want to keep by considering exactly what brings them there in nature. Then observe, enjoy, and learn. Stay observant. Stay inspired. Stay curious. Stay intrigued. Stay objective. Stay patient. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.